Welcome and thank you for joining us for our third podcast in our series. Today we're focused on public pensions investing in alternatives. I'm Danielle Call, a 14-year veteran of the Capital Advisory Group based in New York, responsible for coverage of our public pension investors. I am joined by Laura Lincoln, who is a senior portfolio manager with Utah Retirement System and covers credit and fixed income strategies across the entire portfolio. I'm also joined by Jason Rector, who's a senior analyst with the Wisconsin Investment Board and covers external strategies across asset classes in hedge funds and beta one portfolios. And with that, I'll turn it over to Laura and Jason to give you a brief background on both of their firms. Thanks, Danielle. I'm Laura Lincoln. I joined Utah Retirement Systems a little more than 10 years ago, and we are currently a $33 billion pension fund. We represent all of the public employees in the state of Utah. Thanks for having me, Danielle. SWIB is the eighth largest public pension plan in the country with over $122 billion in AUM. I've worked at SWIB for about five years now. We do have a significant allocation to alternatives, depending on how you want to define it in private equity, real estate, and hedge funds. Sitting within a bank, we've certainly witnessed a shift away from banks taking risk onto their balance sheets. We've been hearing more talk about pensions becoming warehouses of risk. I'd love to sort of hear your take on opportunities that this has created for your portfolio, as well as if you feel like you're actually getting paid for taking this risk. Yes, I'll kick it off. This has been something we've spent a lot of time on our team and I think broadly at SWIB. And basically the thesis is that Pensions, stable, long-term capital base are very attractive places to house some of the strategies that used to be on banks' balance sheets. The key evolution over the past, we'll call it 10 years since the crisis, has been the sophistication of the investment programs at public pensions. The Canadians have really spearheaded it. Some of us in the U.S., I think, are coming up the curve as well. As we get more sophistication, we're able to take some of these strategies in-house, and we're able to analyze some of these strategies externally with managers as well. I think we see two main areas of opportunity, if I were to bucket this category of assets, if you will, and that's for us to be a liquidity provider on an opportunistic basis. And these are traditionally credit-oriented strategies, I'd say, kind of specialty finance type of strategies that you could use kind of like a peer-to-peer lending as a high-level example. Um, I think what we're doing is quite different and more nuanced, but that's an example of something that as banks stepped away, as lending became tighter, there was a need for another capital provider. And so one example of where we've been doing that is funding spinouts. And so as talent has come out of prop desks at banks, and that's happened again since the crisis, whether it's funding hedge fund strategies where that talent goes to or whether it's bringing that talent in-house has been the other area when we think about where we're trying to become warehousers of risk and trying to evolve. That's how we're doing it. And Laura, would you agree with that investment opportunity as well? Yeah, I would. I don't know that we necessarily always think of it as becoming a warehouse of risk that no longer fits within banks or other types of institutions. But I think one thing that's really enabled us to participate in maybe more esoteric strategies or non-traditional strategies is that it's also become more common that the structure matches the liquidity, the duration of the assets. And I think that's been a huge development in terms of opening new investment categories for pension investors and and really other institutions who are very cognizant of avoiding asset liability mismatches. 
I think, you know, along those lines, another conversation that comes up quite frequently when we're speaking to a lot of the public pensions has been talk about managed accounts. I wouldn't necessarily say that we're seeing that many pensions at this point implementing, but certainly a lot of questions being asked, a lot of work being done. Is this something that both of your institutions have taken a look at? Sure. So I think the the main trade-off when we've spent a lot of time evaluating managed accounts is something that comes up continually. We do have managed accounts within our long-only, our beta one book of business. We have large allocations with funds, and so we're able to get managed accounts with our equity managers or fixed income managers. However, those are fully funded. They're buying cash securities. So where we see the opportunity for managed accounts and what's intriguing is the capital efficiency of hedge fund and alternative strategies, which means if it's a strategy that uses leverage like discretionary macro or relative value that you can partially fund that. And that's much more capital efficient for your balance sheet because you've freed up some cash to do something else with. The issue that we've continually come back to is the potential for adverse selection in terms of the strategies that you would like to have a managed account with. And when we look at the portfolio that we've built, we'd have to turn over a significant portion of that portfolio if we were to go to a purely managed account platform. Yeah, I agree. I think, again, like Jason, we have managed accounts that are long only. We have a very small number of truly managed accounts, which are maybe in more non-traditional strategies, but can't really be long short because of our constraints around leverage. And so managed account platforms are something that we have also explored as a possible solution for having more control over the assets themselves and having more visibility into liquidity and overlap across different funds. I think we've also struggled with the same issue that Jason mentioned, which is that you may have some element of either certain strategies not being a good fit for managed account platforms or some kind of adverse selection bias in terms of the managers that are willing to participate in a managed account platform. So I think there are challenges to it. We haven't gotten comfortable with managed account platforms yet, but it is something that we've spent a fair amount of time looking at. There is a middle ground there too, where maybe you use it for part of your program, but you still keep the Mm -hmm. managers that won't do it. The issue that you run there is, aside from capital efficiency, the main selling point for managed accounts is transparency and risk management and the ability to tweak the portfolio. When you can only do it on a subset of your portfolio, it significantly hampers that benefit, which is, again, when we come back to it, it's like, okay, what's the capital efficiency benefit I can get from where I can do it relative to the adverse selection? And so I think we continually come around to it and utilize it very selectively. And I guess on that, given the increase for transparency and fees being a big issue, I think we've been seeing more and more pensions managing assets internally. Do you think it provides a certain benefit to the plan? I think it depends a lot on the resources that any given fund or team has available. So I think the way that we manage internally at the present time is that we try to get our equity beta from internally managed indexes. And that's a very cost-efficient way for us to get that exposure rather than paying an external manager to do what we can effectively do in-house. We don't have additional internally managed strategies at this time. We're really built around a manager diligence and fund selection model in terms of our team's expertise, with the exception being our real estate portfolio, which is a direct portfolio. That's a very different skill set than managing a fixed income index in-house. But should we continue to grow resource, we may be making a different choice down the road. Yeah, and I think we're slightly larger, but it's the same philosophy. We start out with what do we want to do? What do we think the asset allocation and active risk 
allocation is that can help us achieve our objectives. Once we've decided what that is, then it's just let's be practical and let's be rational about the best way to implement that solution. And so for us, once you do get a little more scale, you start to really make the evolution into more of an asset manager type of organization. And so I think the ideal organization, honestly, for doing what we do is a hybrid of that because we can do a lot of the things internally, whether it's beta replication, which a lot of times we can do for very cheap. And now you've seen that evolve in in recent years where we've built out an internal multi-asset team. We've continued to build out our internal active equity and fixed income teams where we don't need to do that as much externally, whereas 10 years ago it was very different category. And so when we think about what that means for alternatives, I think it's a big deal because go back five, 10 years ago and hedge fund strategies that were in everybody's portfolio are starting to make their way out of our portfolio. Can I just ask, is that primarily sort of an alpha capture mentality that's where you're looking at strategies that are coming out of your portfolio? Is that because you just don't see significant outperformance possibility at this time? Yeah, I think there's a correlation there because one example in our portfolio has been CTAs. And I think there are multiple reasons why we still have some CTAs in our portfolio, but it's the ones that our internal team also has a CTA. And so what we think we're doing in CTAs within our hedge fund portfolio is very different than what our internal teams are doing. Mm -hmm. I think there's a correlation between, oh, once we figure out that we can do something internally, it's saying something about what we want to be doing in our hedge fund portfolio as well. Just in general, we want to be investing in the cracks. We want to be investing in in places that are less crowded, less sophisticated, because we think that we're going to get compensated for digging and doing the diligence. Yeah. Given that rates have been so low for some time now, how has your fixed income allocation changed, if at all, sort of in size as well as composition? So we have a fixed income allocation, which is relatively small. Right now, we're at about 15% of our total plan assets in fixed income, and that's almost all investment grade. There's one very small allocation that can be core plus. We have had quite a bit of cash for a while, which has been a bit of a drag. But I think right now, we're at certainly a big discussion point for our team in terms of thinking about whether the ag exposure that we currently have is the exposure that we want to keep owning, given where rates are and given where the duration is on that benchmark. We haven't made any decisions yet, but it's very topical for our team. Yeah, I mean, we take a pretty long-term approach to the total portfolio pension plans asset allocation. We have, I think, roughly 30% in fixed income. I don't think that's changed meaningfully. I don't expect it to where we are a little bit more variable in our in our hedge fund portfolio and in some of our private credit, our private debt portfolios, there's been a lot of conversation around, okay, we're late cycle year after year, high yield and corporate spreads keep coming in. So we're making good money, but we don't necessarily want to go to cash because there's opportunity cost to that. We've spent a lot of time, and this goes back to the becoming a warehouser for risk and trying to find different sources of carry, basically. And so finding... Specialty finance is the one that comes to mind first, but finding some of these sources of return, they tend to have a distribution that resembles credit. And so that's why it kind of fits nicely in that bucket. And it sounds like moving more down the to, to less liquid opportunities. The liquidity is up to you, but I think the complexity premium is real because for a lot of these things, you may not have 
a true loss curve that goes back more than you may not even have it going back to the crisis, which is problematic. I think for us, because our fixed income allocation is relatively small and it's also at the bottom end of its strategic range right now, we want that piece of the portfolio to act as a source of liquidity. But right now, I think the choice is sort of, do we want something that's maybe like a short duration, high quality, almost like cash or cash plus, as opposed to taking the duration of the ag and not having a lot of upside at this point. So for us, it's really preserving liquidity and making sure we have dry powder if we find opportunities to deploy it. We have a lot of less liquid strategies in the rest of our portfolio, and that does include private credit and lending. It's interesting to talk about the specialty finance or different types of consumer lending or business lending strategies that are out there, and a lot of those have relatively short duration or time frame that they're actually outstanding, and it leads you to another problem, which is reinvestment risk. So yes, you may be capturing some premium for participating in that, but if it's only outstanding for nine months or 18 months, then you've got to figure out what you're doing after that. Yep. That's a fair point. The hot topic everyone wants to talk about these days is fees, right? I think there's been a lot of pushback on hedge fund fees, and we've seen people get very creative. Texas Teachers has been very vocal with their one or 30 model. Are you seeing a big shift away from these higher fee products? Have you seen any creative fee structures? Have you adopted the one or 30 model? For URS, this has been a hot topic for a long time. It's definitely not a new topic for us. I think we've been on the forefront of pushing not just fees, but also structures that offer better alignment between the GP and the LP for a number of years, really coming out of 2008 was when we really started pushing on that particular subject. And ultimately, it is about reducing the fee load so that our beneficiaries are guaranteed the the retirement that they're expecting. So that's our end goal is to get the best performing strategies we can at a cost that is A, reasonable, and B, aligned between us and the people deploying the capital. Actually, our former investment council now works at Alborn and has been very instrumental in the 1 or 30 model and really kind of getting that implemented across the board. I think that it can work very well. It really depends on the strategy. It is dependent on being able to identify some kind of beta or benchmark that you want to use, which isn't always particularly easy to do. Yeah, I would just emphasize the focus for us. I mean, we're proud of the level and, but more importantly, the alignment of the fee structures that we've negotiated. I think if you looked across our hedge funds, we've got custom fee deals with the vast majority. And in the situations where they're capacity constrained or have no reason to reduce fees, we've been able to change the alignment which may be like reducing a management fee and increasing an incentive fee or something like that, such that the managers, when we see them willing to do that when they don't have to, they're inherently betting on themselves. If you're too focused on the level of fees or if you try and implement the same structure across all different strategies, you're going to end up making a type 1 or type 2 error. You're going to let things go by that you otherwise shouldn't have, and you're going to potentially compromise on quality too. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think you can't take a cookie-cutter approach to fees, terms, structures, But it is also important to keep it simple, to keep it operationally efficient and something that both the GP and us as the LP can implement. We have certainly had the experience of maybe getting a bit too cute with the structure and having it be overly complicated to actually put into place. And then in the end, making sure that you're first and foremost choosing thoughtful investors 
not just selecting based on who will take the business for the cheapest fee. Totally agree. Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed that podcast. And thank you again to Jason and Laura for their participation. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. The views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. or its affiliates. This communication is provided for information purposes only. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. or its affiliates, collectively J.P. Morgan, normally make a market and trade as a principal in securities, other financial products, and other asset classes that may be discussed in this communication. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please consult www.jpmorgan.com forward slash country forward slash US forward slash EN forward slash sales and trading disclaimer.